let's dive into um, Luke's gospel. It's where we're going to be this morning, Luke chapter 9, um, verses 18 to 27. If you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. We'll get one to you. Luke uh, chapter 9, it's where we're at. Verses 18 to 27. We're really going to be focusing in on verses 23 to 27 this morning, but I wanted you to see the context once more. So let's read. Um, I'll pray and, and we'll dive in. Now it happened that as he, Jesus, was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old is risen. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, now hear this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Would you pray with me? That we invite you to come and, and have your way with us. That we know that we need ears to hear. We need eyes to see. We need hearts made soft to feel the truths, the realities that are presented to us in your word. God, if you don't come in these moments in your grace, by your spirit, nothing happens. I don't live under a false or with a false notion that I can change anyone. Sure, there are times, Lord, I confess, where I try with my multiplication of words, try to form and shape or wake somebody up or try to bring, drag people to Christ. But Lord, you have over the years convinced me again and again. This is your work. This is your harvest. We are your people. 
And we need you to come and move or nothing happens. And so we just invite you here. We, we, we beg you, God, to come. And in all the, the myriad of ways that we need you, would you be all of that and more for us? If there is sin that we're harboring, would you convict us? Would you bring it out into the open, not to expose, but to heal? If there is condemnation that we're sitting under, God, would you, would you lift us up? Show us the wonders of the cross again and the mercy that's ours in Jesus. God, if, if, if we are experiencing joy or blessing, would you show us the source of that joy or blessing and give us gratitude that rises above the things of earth to the God of heaven? So in all these ways and more, God, I just pray that you would meet us here this morning. It's in your name that we gather. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, some of you may know, some of you may not. Um, so I began pastoring, um, you know, kind of my pastoral, kind of preaching ministry, cutting my teeth, as it were, in San Luis Obispo. Um, so Central Coast, amazing town, loved it. Ruined me for pretty much every other city I would live in. Uh, if you haven't been there, you need to visit. But I got saved there. Um, um, ended up coming on staff at my church there. was college pastor there. And cut my teeth in ministry there. Probably about five years, I think, from 2006 to 2011. Somewhere near the end of my time, um, there in slow and... And in the midst of my ministry, somewhere near the end of it all, I started noticing um, two what you might call master themes um, that came over the years to define really my message and my ministry. Two things that I said, okay, if I had to boil down everything I was after these last five years with these college kids, what would it, what would it be if, if I could kind of distill what my message has been? What would it be? Two things continually, uh, rose to the surface for me. Two things, it seems, I was continually burdened by and kept bringing to them again and again. Because these two things, I think, are found all over the scripture. And really form, uh, in many ways, the key or the essence to the Christian life. I'm going to give them to you right now. Master theme number one, the cross of Christ. Master theme number two, my cross. The cross of a disciple. And the amazing thing for me as I came to our text this morning, and of course I knew that this was coming, but it's, it's just a great delight for me to see these two master themes placed side by side in our text. You just can't miss the connections between his cross and the cross we are called to take up as we follow him. His cross my cross, the cross that he bears for me and the cross that I bear for him. I'm going to elaborate on this just a bit, even here at the start, before we really dive in. 
Our, our, our text begins in verses 18 to 22 there, which we've looked at in weeks past. So we're not going to spend a ton of time there. But as we've seen in this section, Jesus is essentially for the first time revealing to his disciples. Hey, listen, it's I'm not going to be all you think I am. <laughs> I'm going to be more, but it's not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. The Christ, the Son of Man... Is going to suffer many things. He's going to be rejected. He's going to be killed. And then he'll be raised. In other words, there's a cross for the Christ. Now, this is fundamental to our faith. This is really everything to us if you remove the cross from christianity you no longer have christianity there's this quote i was uh, going to read to you i figured i'd spare you for the sake of time but i do want to sum it up uh john stott wrote this amazing book magnificent book uh called the cross of christ and in it he talks about the cross as the symbol of our faith and he says man Every religion or major, major ideology has a symbol of some sort that, that really is um, uh, a visible representation of the essence of that religion or ideology. And he said, it's interesting because when um, the early church or the, you know, the Christians uh, were kind of, kind of discerning what would be the right symbol for Christianity, he's like, man, they could have come up with a lot of stuff. We don't realize this because now we just, the cross. But they could have, and he just listed off a number of things. He said they could, they could have uh, talked about the servant's apron, you know, that he wrapped around his waist when he, when he washed their feet. Or the boat where he delivers the Sermon on the Mount, so showing that we're centered around his teaching. You know, you could have picked a, a Bible showing that he's the living word. Or you could have picked the stone that, that shows he's you know, raised from the dead because he, the stone was rolled away. Or the throne because he's ascended to the throne. But he says, no. Where the Christians landed and where we now land is the symbol, the very symbol that, that puts forward the essence of our faith. It's the cross. It's this picture of the one who was shamed, the one who was rejected, the one who was exposed, crucified, died, killed. Because the cross, the death of Christ, is really what everything else hangs upon. And if you lose this, you lose it all. The cross is the means whereby sinful man is reconciled to a holy God. And it's the only means whereby that can take place. This is um, one of the reasons why what's come to be known as, as, as liberal Christianity, if you will, if you can even call it that, is so reprehensible. So there's this whole movement against the scriptures and against even really anything supernatural in them. And particularly against this idea, this ridiculous idea of the atonement. Or that there was anything miraculously redemptive about the cross. So there's this whole, there's this whole, uh, aberration, this aberration or a whole, whole division, uh, that moved off from the church that says, listen, 
Jesus has a lot of wonderful things to teach us. We have a lot of great principles here for how we can live moral lives. And man, we hope that everybody learns from him. But come on, let's be real. We don't need him to die for us. But the reality is, is if you lose his cross, any preacher, scholar, denomination that moves away from his cross is no longer within the bounds of Christianity at all. Everything hangs on the cross of Christ, his cross. And that was master theme number one for me. Hopefully you still feel that in, in, in this place. Of, that is what I hope this church is centered on from this point to the day I die. But then there is now this master theme number two. My cross, the cross of the disciple, the cross that we are called to take up as we follow him. And here really is the essential point for us this morning. His cross is of no benefit to me. If I am unwilling, unable, to take up my own cross and follow him. Did you hear that? I want to say it one more time. His cross is of no benefit to me if I am not willing or able to pick up my own cross and follow after him. In the latter part of our text, verses 23 to 27, Jesus draws a hard line. A harder line than any of us would want him to makes us uncomfortable. He draws a hard line between his cross and mine. He just got done talking about, listen, I'm going to go to the cross. Now, let me talk about your relationship to me. Because there's a cross you're going to need to pick up as well. If you're going to be associated. If you're going to be behind me. If you're going to be connected. If you're going to be united to me. Now, this is what makes things like the prosperity gospel so reprehensible. Again, if you can call it gospel. So there is now all over the world pulpits occupied by men preaching a message that essentially says this. Jesus Christ suffered so that you no longer have to. And I'm not just talking about eternal suffering. Man, we all believe that. We all should give a hearty amen to the idea that Jesus suffered the wrath of God. I don't have to come under the wrath of God ever because of Him. But they try to pull that back into this life. And that is the critical error. To say that, no, his suffering on the cross actually means that I shouldn't have suffering there or now. And that if you and I had enough faith, listen, we could just kind of shake the pockets of God and get all the treasure we want out of it. Because he's got health, wealth, prosperity for us now. But this sort of theology has no idea what to do with the text we are going to focus on here this morning. 
When Jesus looks at his disciples and says, if you want participation in me and my work, take up your cross. We're not just talking about his cross anymore. We're talking about our own. In any theology, any so-called gospel that conveniently edits out my cross, your cross, is no longer the biblical gospel, is no longer biblical Christianity. These are the two master themes that I recognized in my ministry as identifying them back then, and I hope they remain. His cross and my own. If I could put it somewhat scandalously, what I'm seeing in the Gospels, what I'm seeing in particular right here in our text, is that when Jesus attempts to present the Gospel to people, He talks not merely about one cross, but two. There are, in essence, Two crosses in his message. And these two crosses, his and mine, really are what I see as the two poles, if you will, of the Christian life. And everything else turns on the axis that these two poles establish. You with me on that? You know what I'm talking about? Like pole, like north and south pole. You know what I mean by that? They establish this axis and the world turns On that axis, I'm saying his cross and my own, the entirety of the Christian life turns on these two crosses, on the axis established by these two poles. So things are going to get real in here this morning. Um, I don't suppose it's a popular message to talk about this side of, of things, but I hope I can convince you Jesus brings this stuff up because he loves us. Because he has life for us. Because he wants to save us. Because he wants to bring us into the fullness. We're, just, we're always so satisfied with less than what Jesus has. It sounds hard, but man, there's joy at the end of this. So this morning we are going to focus in particular on verses 23 through 27. And I want to look really just at two things. First, the calculus is what I'd call it. And then second, the Christian life. We're going to spend most of our time on the calculus and then just draw a few implications for the Christian life at the end. So first, the calculus. Um, Under this heading, I'm really just going to push verse by verse through uh, this text here. And by the end, I trust you'll know what I mean by this idea of the calculus or a calculation or an equation that's here in Jesus' words. Um, We begin there in verse 23. Please read along with me. I want you to see these things so that you don't come after me. You can uh, you can argue with Christ. Um, but we begin there in verse 23 where uh, Luke just gives us this little background note. And he said to all, and that's important because we know from this, therefore, that, that what Jesus is about to say is not just for the 12, not just for the apostles, uh, but for any who would hear him. He said to all that were there, following around the crowds, whatever it was, the masses around him, he just said to them all, and he would say to us, 
you and I here this morning. These very same things. So let's see what he has to say. If anyone would come after me. Now pause again. If anyone would come after me, Jesus says. Now, the basic question that confronts us here is this. Do you want to come after Jesus? Or, if we could flesh that out a little bit further, do you want to be uh, a disciple? That's the clear uh, implication when we look at Luke 14, verse 27. The same exact ideas, and he's saying, listen, if you want to come, uh, follow me. You've got to take up your cross, and then you can be my disciple. So the question in front of us is, do we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Or, if I could even put a sharper point on it, do you want to be a Christian? Because to be a Christian is to be a disciple. Is to come after Him. So that's the question Jesus is now uh, putting forward before all of us in this room. Do you want to be a Christian? Now there may be some here who would say, no. Mom, dad, my spouse, my whatever, brought me here, dragged me here. I don't want to be a Christian. That breaks my heart. But I do assume most of us are probably in the other camp. We, We would say, yeah. Yeah, I want to be a Christian. Yeah, I want to follow him. Yeah, sure, I want to be a disciple. And this is where Jesus then comes in in that moment and says, okay, if you want to come after me, let me tell you what you got to do. Here come his words. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now these are devastating words, at least they should be. If we understood the weight of it, what he's getting at here. Uh, I I think um, sometimes, because we're so familiar with the cross, we, we might mistakenly, even when we hear we're called to take up our own cross, uh, kind of neuter the whole idea. It's this nice idea that we, we put the cross on our wall. And we remember it fondly. <laughs> we, we, we put it around our neck. We tattoo it on our arm. The idea of taking up your cross might sound somewhat nice to us. If we get to be a part of Jesus, that sounds good. But we get removed from the context um, where Jesus is speaking this in. And I, I want you to, to hear what these guys would have heard when they heard Jesus say this. Um, there again in John Stott's book, uh, The Cross of Christ, he talks a little bit later about crucifixion in the ancient world. I want you to hear this. This is what would be in the background of the disciples' minds as they hear Jesus talking about them taking up a cross to follow him. John Stott writes this, There was a horror with which crucifixion was regarded in the ancient world. Crucifixion seems to have been invented by barbarians on the edge of the known world and taken over from them by both Greeks and Romans. It is probably the most cruel method of execution ever practiced, for it deliberately delayed death until maximum torture had been inflicted. 
The victim could suffer for days before dying. When the Romans adopted it, they reserved it for criminals, convicted of murder, rebellion, or armed robbery, provided that they were also slaves, foreigners, or other what they called non-persons. Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion, except in extreme cases of treason. Cicero, in one of his speeches, condemned it as a most cruel and disgusting punishment. And so it's with that background in mind, and that sort of thing filling out that word or idea for the disciples. It's it's in that scene that Jesus calls them and says, listen, if you want to come after me, you've got to take up that. You've got to go through that. Take up your cross. Another commentator um, writes this. The disciples had probably seen a man take up his cross. They knew what it meant. When a man from one of their villages took up a cross and went off with a little band of Roman soldiers, he was on a one-way journey. He would not be back. So there's a finality to it. There's, there, there's a horror to it. And Jesus is saying, if you want to be a Christian, a disciple, that's what you're taking up. I'm not just going to talk about his cross. We're going to talk about our own. Yours, mine. So, needless to say, this would have been a rough day for um, the disciples. Uh, they have had their world utterly shattered at this point. They just realized that they have, or they have been following a crucified Christ, a Christ who is on his way to death, and then they just learn immediately following that they also are called to be crucified disciples. That they're taking up a cross and following him. Their whole world is upside down. We thought you were going to reign, and we were going to reign with you. Jesus would say, yes and amen, but through death to life. But Jesus goes on. And these things are fleshed out further for us in the verses that follow. Uh, in verse 24, we see that uh, we are losing our lives, he says. So if you want to come after me, deny yourself. Here's a vivid picture. Take up your cross. Let me flesh it out. Lose your life. Or, in verse 26, we see that we're going to suffer shame. I mean, that's the clear implication of this, that we are going to be tempted to be ashamed of our relationship with Jesus Christ because the world's going to hate him. And just like it hates him, they're going to hate us. John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. He said, if you were in the world, the world would love you. If you were of the world, I'm sorry, the world would love you. But because I've called you out of the world, because you're associated with me, the world is going to hate you. There's going to be shame. One of the um, speakers at the Gospel Coalition conference that a number of us went to yesterday, which was great. um, One of the speakers was um, from Iran. 
and uh, raised Muslim, saved out of that. One of the stories that he shared was uh, really the, the point of his conversion. And he said that, okay, listen, he was talking to his dad about what he was reading in the Bible. And his dad just straight up said, listen, if you are going after Jesus, you are going to lose your dad. You're not my boy. If you're going after Christ, there's going to be nothing but shame and rejection from me. But by God's grace, this guy denied himself, took up his cross, followed after Christ, lost his life for his sake, suffered shame for the name. What would you do? I hope that you feel the weight of these sorts of things. I mean, Jesus all over the place because he loves the people he's talking with. Encourages them. And we'll see this throughout Luke's gospel to count the cost. He slows them down. We think, man, you had, you had them on the hook, Jesus. Why, why you make the sale, close the deal. And he slows them down and says, are you sure you want to pay this price? Are you sure you're aware? This is the sort of thing he's doing right now with these disciples and with us. It is a full-on surrender. A full-on severance from the world. If we are going to lay hold of Jesus and all that he is. Now, it's in the midst of all of this that um, what I'm talking about by this idea of calculus uh, starts to come into view. There's an equation here in Jesus' words, and I want you to see it. you got to see it. Because if I were to stop with where, I, I, you know, where I've just laid out for you, then as far as I'm aware, it would seem like Jesus is, uh, I don't know, somewhat of a cosmic slave driver, a bit of an abusive dad or friend or bridegroom. What is this all about? So we got to take up our cross. We are just here to kind of suffer and die. It's just asceticism and self-sacrifice. And that's about it. But that's not the whole story. That's just one side of the equation. We've got to see where he's going with the other side. There's a calculus here, a calculation he's calling us to make, and he's showing us why this exchange, why taking up our cross, makes the most sense. It's this side that leads us to the conclusion that at the end of the day, the Christian life is not so much about what we are giving up, as much as it is about what we are gaining. Namely, God. Jesus. I wonder if you've seen this even as we've been looking at this text, but this glorious fact is tucked into nearly every verse. I'm going to bring it out for you. You cannot miss this. In verse 23, if anyone would come after who? Me. Uh, Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow who? Me. In other words, yes, we're denying self. 
and the things of this world. Yes, we're taking up our cross and dying to this world. But no, he's not going to leave us empty handed. We leave stuff behind to lay hold of him. We get him. That's the point. That's the calculus. That's the other side of the equation. So it makes uh, sense of all of this. Or we could keep going. In verse 24, what does he say? Whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Live a miserable existence and then come up to heaven where I'll put him to work. No, we'll save it. You lose your life for my sake, you save it. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am after your salvation in this moment. It might sound like, for goodness sake, we're talking about crucifixion. It might sound like I'm trying to kill you. But I am trying to save you from the very things that are in fact killing you right now. Namely, your sin and the false gospels, the false gods of this world that you are trusting in and pursuing and chasing after. He's saying, you let all that go, it's going to feel like loss. It's going to feel like a cross. But I'm telling you, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. That's why he says in John, John's gospel that he, he didn't come. Man, the, the, the thieves come in to, to steal and, and to destroy. But man, he comes to give life. that We might have life and have it abundantly. We start to tap into that even on this side of heaven as the Spirit, you know, wells up inside rivers of living water. Now, it doesn't mean we don't suffer. It just means that in the midst of our suffering and in the midst of the world shaming us and in the midst of our poverty or whatever it may be that He calls us into, there is a strength in our inner man that though our outer man is wasting away day by day, that's being renewed and there's life. It can't be stopped. Set in motion. That's what Jesus is after in these moments. Not losing your life merely, but saving it in Him. Verse 25, we see again the other side of this equation where Jesus says this. He kind of cues us into what He's after, what His aim is. And He says, What does it profit a man? I just want to stop there. The whole logic, the whole whole framework within which he's he's, um, coming at this discussion with his disciples is go, think about it with me. What's going to profit you? You hear that? He's concerned with your profit, even as he's talking about taking up your cross. You see, that sounds like a massive price, a massive loss, a huge cost. And it is. But at the end of the day, all it really will be is gain and profit for us. And then in verses 26 to 27, again, the implicit message is, if you you look at that, uh, the implicit message is that following Jesus, while it will invite shame and scorn from the world on this side of heaven. Gosh, 
our association with Jesus when we stand before God will we'll, we'll invite praise and glory, honor. So yes, you might be shamed, rejected, even killed for your association with Jesus. But it's the very thing that gets you shamed, rejected, and killed here that gets you accepted, glorified, loved, received there. So there's an equation here. I mean, this is why the apostles, gosh, it's so incredible, because in, in, in the course of the gospel, as we read it, you get, you, you get the understanding that they, they don't understand any of this. They don't get what Jesus is talking about. And then suddenly, when he's risen from the dead, when he pours out his spirit, it's like everything comes into view for them now. God opens up their eyes. And what we see is, is the apostles, after being imprisoned by their own kinsmen for their association with Jesus and their preaching of the gospel, after being beaten and then finally released, they don't kind of walk out sulking and, oh my gosh, like you and I probably would. I certainly would. Now, here's what we're told in Acts 5.41. They went away rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name. Like, what a privilege! (laughs) What a joy! What an honor! Because we must be so associated with Christ if the world is so against us. Is that amazing? They get the calculus. They get the equation. And therefore, there's a power. There's a life. The walking in it. They understand that Christianity, at the end of the day, is not so much about denying ourselves as much as it is about indulging in Jesus. That Christianity, at the end of the day, is not so much about losing our lives as much as it is about saving our lives in Jesus. That Christianity, at the end of the day, is not so much about the great cost of following Jesus as much as it is about the great profit we gain in Him. And the Christianity at the end of the day is not so much about the shame we receive from the world as much as it is about the glory we receive from God. They get it. Um, I think there's an amazing picture of what I'm after here, what Jesus is after here, uh, in what we're seeing in the Olympics these days. Um, you guys watching the Olympics? I mean, I love it. I'm, I'm letting my kids stay up way too late, you know. Because they always put, I mean, we like the figure skating, you know. We're doing the, am I the only family that's got the socks on at the end of the day, uh, uh, clearing out the family room and like pretending you're doing twirls and music? Am I, is that weird? Triple sow cow? I don't even know what a triple sow cow is, but I'm pretty sure I landed one last night. <laughs> we, we love it. It's great. But One of the things that I think we see uh, when we consider these Olympic athletes is exactly what I'm talking about here, just an illustration of it. I mean, how do these guys or gals get the gold? 
Is it not that along the way to the top of the podium, there are a thousand denials, self-denials, right? Like, I've got to say no to junk food. Man, I would love a Snickers or a Cheeto, you know, bag of Cheetos or whatever. No, I want the gold. I gotta say no to staying up and binge watching some net, the latest Netflix series or sleeping in the next day because I'm training and I'm working. I gotta say no to just chilling out on the weekends or say no to hanging out with friends. I mean, some of these kids are young and they're just training and training and training and training. Why? Because they see a greater pleasure, a greater joy. You see, so at the end of the day, Christianity is not so much about denying all the stuff that we have to let go of as much as it is about what we gain. You see, if an Olympic athlete wins the gold and, you know, they stand there at the end and they're interviewing them. I I mean, I've never seen the interview where they go, man, you know, it's great that I got this, but I I really wish I could have had those bags of Cheetos back in the day. I'm sad that I, I missed out on the Netflix series all my friends were talking about. Um, I, you know, I, I could have used a little extra sleep. No, they're going, this is what it was all for. Tears are coming down. The this is why I said no to all this stuff. It was because of what I would gain. I mean, Paul would use this exact analogy in 1 Corinthians where they would have Olympic games and things about the Christian life. But the idea is that it's not just denial for the sake of denial. You guys, it's not just taking up our cross because we're, you know, we're lowly and meek and, and, and we're supposed to kind of, you know, whip and lash ourselves on our way to heaven. It's because there is a greater pleasure. How could we not turn away from the stuff of this world that ultimately, when we're, our hearts grab a hold of it too tightly, destroy us? How could we not let go of that to get him? Now, Jesus knows there's another way to run this equation. You can come at it from the other side. You can get it backwards, in other words. And this is where the world often goes. This is where natural man goes. This is where our flesh goes. We get it all backwards. Uh, This approach is really summed up for us there in verse 25, the second part, where Jesus says this. He gains the whole world, but he loses and forfeits his soul. So there is another way of approaching this equation, and that is to say, I don't care about eternity. I don't care about God. I don't care about forgiveness of sins. I don't want self-denial now. I don't want to take up my cross. I want the world and all that it has to offer, and I want it now. Now, as I thought about this, I mean, does that not sound like the slogan in many ways of Silicon Valley? Gain the whole world. I mean, we're after the world. Let me climb the ladder. Let me get the accolades. Let me buy the stuff. He who has the most toys at the end of the game wins. 
And Christians are brought into this nonsense. Pursuing this world as if they don't have a God who said, listen, I'm going to give you everything. I'll provide what you need now and in the age to come beyond what you can even conceive. Do you remember um, how God essentially responds to this sort of mentality? Uh, when Jesus is telling this parable, there's a guy whose fields are producing. And he says, man, what am I going to do? I guess I'm going to build bigger barns so that all this stuff that I'm getting from this world here and now, I can put it in these barns. I can't fit it all in. I got to build more and more. I want to keep it. And then it says he, he got it all in these barns. He kicked back on his on his lazy boy. And he said, man, soul, you've got what you need now. Eat, drink, and be merry. Live it up. And Jesus says that, listen, God is going to come to that brother in that moment and says, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? You have made yourself rich with regard to the stuff of the world, but you are poor when it comes to God. You gained the world, but you lost or forfeited your soul. So Jesus is here saying to everyone in this room, what's it going to be? If anyone would come after me, be a disciple, be a Christian. Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Where are you at? Now, we've seen the calculus. Um, I want to look at how this relates to the Christian life for a moment. This is where we're going to close. Um, Jesus knows that if we're ever going to really start this Christian life thing, that we can't just spend all our time talking about His cross. We have to have an honest conversation about our own cross. Now perhaps you've misunderstood me up to this point and I want to um, clear the air here. Uh, I am not saying that His cross is equal to mine. Or that mine is in any way uh, atoning. Or that mine is anything like his. No, I'm not saying that. I am not saying that you and I are somehow saved by our own works. That's not what Jesus is after when he says pick up your own cross. It's not like, wow, I thought Christianity was about receiving free grace. And now it sounds like you're saying it's about (laughs) atoning for yourself. Sacrificing your own life to get forgiven. That's not what's going on. I am saying this, until we are ready and willing to take up our own cross, we have no reason to think that we shall receive the benefits procured by his own, by his cross. The act of taking up my cross to follow Jesus is simply an expression of my full hearted embrace of him as my savior, Lord and treasure. Is she following with me in that? It's not that that act is salvific. It's not as if I'm saved by my good works. It's that 
I don't get how deeply I need forgiveness of sins and how His work on the cross is the only hope for me if I am not ready to let go of the things of this world to embrace Him. We're still playing games. We're still hedging our bets, you see. So this idea of taking up our cross is really just another way of saying, place your faith in Jesus. Because to place our faith in Jesus means we are turning away from everything else. All the false gods, all the false gospels, saying, you are my only way out of this predicament. So I'll leave it to get you. That's the point. And that's why I think Jesus, immediately following the first disclosure of his own cross, uh, draws that hard line straight away toward the cross that we need to bear if we're going to follow, if we're going to be associated, if we are going to uh, receive the benefits of his work ourselves. So if we don't pick up our own cross in embrace of his, we can't even start the Christian life. It's the starting point. But then I wonder if you noticed that little word that I hadn't landed on uh, really until right now. And that is that he doesn't just say we take up our cross once and follow him. He says this is a daily affair. That it's not a one and done, well, I signed a card, I raised my hand, I got baptized, or whatever it was, so I am now good to go, because that moment was authentic. So who really cares where I'm at with him now? No, what he is trying to say here, when he says, take up your cross daily and follow me, is that this is a daily issue. That we get on our knees every morning and say, man, take the world, but give me Jesus. The Christian life can't get out of the gate, at least with any sort of power, if we do not have a cross on our backs. It's it's crazy. Uh, This guy Samuel Rutherford, he was put in prison for his faith, and he's writing these letters letters from there, and one of the things he says is, man, everybody talks about bearing your cross like it's this bad thing. He says, I have found that fastening that cross to my back has not been a burden, but more like wings. It's essentially how the Christian life takes flight. This place of surrender. Embracing His cross and and taking up my own. Let me show you, um, let me explain how this works. I mean, this is why, back in the beginning, I said that I think everything in the Christian life turns on the two poles that are established by His cross and, and, and my cross. That axis, everything turns on this. Let me explain what I mean. Every sin you ever commit, every sin you ever commit, is a lapse of faith in His cross and a shrugging off of your own. And if we were to come at it another way, Every good fruit, every good fruit you ever bear is the outworking of your faith 
in his cross and a taking up of your own. I'll give you a few examples and we'll close. Imagine, um, I mean, we could do this with so many different issues, but imagine the issue of pornography, okay? The guy or gal who struggles with pornography. Is it not that in those moments where, where we buckle into sin and we say, you know what, that looks good and I don't care. Is it not that what's happening is we've lost sight of first his cross? Meaning, I don't see the beauty of the sacrifice. I don't see the beauty of his love. I'm not experiencing the pleasure of relationship with Jesus. I, I, I'm not embracing the full riches of the inheritance that he says is mine in him. When I lose sight of his cross, suddenly the stuff in the world starts to become a lot more appealing. It starts to seem like, why would I wait for something I don't even really care about? I'm not really even experiencing any joy in. When I could get this here and now. So we, simultaneously, as we lose sight of his, shrug off our own. I don't want to die to this world. I want everything it has to offer. And I want it now. But, moving it the other way, the other direction towards fruit. If I see, if I see in the gospel, if I see in his cross, man, he loves me that much. I have a bridegroom in heaven who is committed to washing me. It says that he, he, he cherishes us. He gives his life for us. He is, he wants intimate relationship with us. If I see that and I press into that, let me tell you something. The flesh in an image on a magazine or a website no longer seems appealing. It seems almost silly. You know, we laugh at Esau who traded his inheritance or his birthright for a bowl of soup. We go, what an animal, what a silly guy. We do that every day. When we choose sin, the fleeting pleasures of sin over Christ. But when we see his cross comes into view, we experience the pleasure of that. Let me tell you something. We can, even with joy, take up our own cross and die to the fleeting pleasures and promises of this world. Just, just turn the computer off. Let me run one more example for you. I think that we all struggle in one way or another with the fear of man, right? I know I do. The concern for the opinions of others. What are they thinking of me? How do I get them to like me? How should I posture myself to make this go well and to make people accept me? If we lose sight of the cross of Christ and the love that the Father has for us in Him by grace, then suddenly the opinions of everyone else start to seem a lot more important to us, right? Then suddenly we're willing maybe to let go of some of our convictions, some of the things we know we need to stand for, if it means we get to have their acceptance. 
It means oftentimes that what we're going to do is, is live this kind of anxious, horrible life because we, we can't please everyone and yet we're desperately trying. Because we don't see His cross, we've shrugged off our own and we want this world, the stuff it has to offer, instead. But now imagine with me that God in His mercy opens your eyes once again, maybe in your daily devotions as you open up the Word, as you just get on your knees and pray in the midst of temptation, opens your eyes again to the wonders of the cross and His love for you. And you know, man, He speaks a better word over me than what anyone else could say. And He accepts me. He loves me. You know what? I don't have to be more than I am because Jesus was enough for me. You see that, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, suddenly you're not so worried about what everyone else has to say. You're able not only to see his cross, but to take up your own and to die to some of that. To walk in freedom and walk in rest, walk in the peace that God offers. We can keep going, I'll just leave it there. I I just want to leave you with this. Today... In our text, Jesus speaks a hard word, no doubt. No doubt. Nobody, take up your cross and follow me. That doesn't sound nice at all. But he speaks a hard word with a tender heart. His goal in it is your salvation. His goal in it is your life. His goal in it is that you would experience the freedom of the surrendered life. Enjoyment of relationship with Him instead of trying desperately as we attach our heart to the stuff of this world only to be heartbroken again and again and again. He said, stop it with that. Take up your cross. You find it's not so much a burden as much as it is wings. Let's pray. God, thank You that You don't hold back. I'm so grateful that You are not a politician. <laughs> You don't edit yourself to promote your own needs or wants. You say what we need to hear, even if it means you're going to lose a following. (laughs) Even if it means people turn back and go, that does sound like too much. You say what we need to hear because you love us. You're never after a mere following, Lord. You're after making disciples. God, we want to be disciples. We want to be Christians. We want to be the real thing. So I pray right now, would you search us? Would you know us? Would you expose any, any wrong way in us? Would you again open our eyes to the wonder of your cross so that we might even with... Joy. Take up our own. It's in your name we pray. Amen.